Hello and welcome to another episode of The Coder Career with me, Cameron Blackwood. Here on The Coder Career, I talk with awesome people in the software industry and you can learn what they've learned from their careers. Today's guest will be very familiar to anyone who is in the Edinburgh tech scene. It's Selby Carey. Selby's a serial entrepreneur specializing in the intersection between hardware and software, so today makes for a really interesting episode. We discuss the differences between programming hardware and robotics versus standard web-based applications. We also as well discuss the importance of networking as Selby runs the highly successful Edinburgh Tech Meetup. And of course, we'll also chat around his trials and tribulations of learning Swift and why he's decided to build his own app. Before we get started though, just a quick shout out to two sponsors. One is actually myself. For those who aren't familiar, I've recently set up a platform called Startup Grad Jobs. If you're looking for a junior job, probably in software engineering as you're listening to this, please do feel free to go and sign up for free over there. If you're looking to hire junior talent, either technical or non-technical, I would love to hear. Our other sponsor is Zero to Mastery. Zero to Mastery is how I originally mastered React. However, it's not just React, they have a whole suite of courses all available for a monthly fee. If you follow the link in the description, you'll be able to go to Zero to Mastery and support the Coder Career at the same time. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Selby Carey. Hey Selby, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Not bad. Uh, it's become tradition uh, to talk about the weather uh, at the start of this podcast, and you yourself are based in Edinburgh as well. So um, as you'll know, it's lovely and sunny um, tonight. I've got, for once, I've got rugby training and nice weather after this uh, podcast. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, the, the sun's out. I'm feeling, feeling good, feeling good. So thank you for joining to, uh, me today. Do you want to tell the listeners, uh, so particularly maybe those who aren't from Edinburgh may not have come across you before, um, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Uh, so my name is Selby Carey. I'm currently the head of technical operations for a medtech startup called Testcart, which converts your mobile phone into a clinical grade scanner. It mostly works with the NHS, but also provides some self-test options and products. Uh, so my background is quite varied. Uh, I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree uh, from Harriet Watt University, and then went on to found my first business, uh, which raised about half a million in total and was in the robotics sphere. So we ended up building a robotic surveillance vehicle. Uh, I left that business to join Testcart. And obviously on the side, I've continued my entrepreneurial efforts. I host a couple of entrepreneurial meetups, including the Entrepreneur Social Club. I also help to organize and host the Edinburgh Tech Meetup, which obviously is uh, very topical for this. And I also co-write, edit a blog series about scaling startups with a range of engineers, entrepreneurs, and investors from around the world. And that's called Scale Up Lessons. So basically a lot of different things, but I, I love tech. I love building things and I love getting startups. Yeah, put simply, you're an incredibly busy bloke. Uh, basically, a lot of stuff going on, um, but a lot of very cool stuff, which is what we like on the Coda Career. So, um, what what's your story then? So you you came to you came to Edinburgh, went went to Harriet Watt, which uh, people don't know is a historically very famous university for um, for for the world of engineering. Um, I'm maybe going to embarrass myself here. Was Harriet an engineer, or have I got that completely wrong? Um, I can always edit that out, but um, yeah. So so you came here and you you're inspired to study mechanical engineering where, where did that interest come from so i actually had no idea what i wanted to do when i first went to university as, as most people do so i i enjoyed maths and science and design technology i also enjoyed business but i was told that you can get an mba anytime in your life but to get an engineering degree is much more difficult especially if you want to commit four or five years to it so the only thing i knew at the time was cars so I used to build single, well, I helped a family friend to build a single seat racing car, which 
we then restored and that exposed me to the world of mechanical engineering and i thought you know that that sounds really cool i'd love to go get involved and build cars uh, and then i essentially applied got into university and as soon as i arrived i realized damn this is actually not what i wanted to do but i'd already committed and i really enjoyed the skills so i just committed to it ideally i would have wanted to have studied software engineering but at the time where i initially grew up there wasn't much exposure to that uh, and that's kind of what i've done after my first business has focused more on software engineering robotics than my mechanical roots okay interesting i think robotics is cool because i guess you're almost able to combine those two disciplines of engineering of hardware and software um so i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm jumping the gun in uh coming up with that with that correlation but is that is that where that interest in robotics came from because you're able to combine uh, the interest from both sides pretty much i think it it happened naturally as well as i explored different fields so mechanical engineering is kind of like the the grandparents of all other engineering disciplines because it's basically just applied physics if you think about it mm-hmm. and then through doing mechanical engineering i was exposed to a range of different subjects and i slotted to experience each one and for my master's project i worked with the group and we essentially created a self-stabilizing single wheel, which use variable pitch repeller blades to balance a wheel and then momentum to drive it. And that actually became the first patent for Zebra Robotics, which then generated the second patent and then led on to, to sales, which was really exciting. So that's kind of where it happened. It all happened naturally. It's not like I, I went to university thinking I would do robotics. I you know, really wanted to towards the end of my degree, but I realized that it would be more beneficial for me to do it in industry and learn from people who've actually built them rather than in academia. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I, I feel like it's such a common story on, on this show that people develop skills or found businesses almost by accident because they weren't setting out to do that, but they ended up learning something that led to something. And then, so either you start with a problem and then you learn to code as a solution or you're learning to code out of interest and then you find something that you uh, uh, you end up falling in love with and finding very interesting. And um, I, I think it's a very common thing. It's like, I always think you should learn the skills to um, that will potentially give you the ideas. And it's almost like building the foundations to be able to act upon those ideas. And the great thing about being in engineering, whatever discipline of engineering you are in, is we have the power to be able to um, build on what we want. And I think it's interesting what you said about being able to get the MBA at any time, because I'm a very weird case in that I did a business degree first. I did it the wrong way around. Uh, I did a business degree, um, spent a few years, get feeling frustrated because I felt like I couldn't really build anything independently, learn the coding skills because, you know, that way I was able to um, enact upon ideas and iterate upon them very, um, very easily and had the skills to do so, um, which is quite helpful because for me, basically all my ideas are just SAS ideas. So uh, all I need to know is JavaScript anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting that things always seem to work out that way. But I mean, to get a patent, that's, that's pretty cool. That must be a nice thing to have on the CV. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think many people realize what it actually is. It's just a fancy piece of paper that says we were here first. But that doesn't stop anyone <laughs> from actually you know, copying what we've done and slightly changing what it was or just breaching the patent and fighting us in court. So we, we kind of used that as a stepping stone to prove that our technology was viable, not just from a legal perspective, but also that we could take it to the next level. We had something that was protected 
uh, and that was the first step. But when it comes to actual commercials, nobody cares that you have a patent. What they care is, is this valuable and does this solve my problem? Mm-hmm. And then how much is it and, and how long is it going to take to implement? So from a commercial perspective, the patent really wasn't part of the discussion. And when it comes to obviously the CV aspect of it, the, the patent, I don't think adds as much value. I think it's cool if you're an engineer, you go, oh, wow, you've got two patents under your name. Grand. You know, most of the work actually was done by my CTO and our lead engineer. So my name's on there just because of the original concept designs. But at the end of the day, it was a group that comes together for that patent. So I always find it funny when people see something like a registered IP and go, wow, that's really impressive. But actually, it's, it's what you don't see that I think is most impressive. And that tends to be confidential. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And if we're talking about the technical side of what you worked on, and we're talking about self-balancing technology and that kind of thing, um, obviously frame it in the context that many of the listeners are probably like me where uh, I enjoy um, my kind of coding is making API calls uh, in a tracksuit uh, whilst eating a Tesco meal deal with my left hand um, and coding with the right. Um, so that's why that's my usual experience with coding. Um, for building a self-balancing wheel, obviously I, I imagine there's a whole lot of other stuff going on compared to um, the average web dev experience. How, how does it work like architecture-wise in the software? So there was, there was two, essentially. There was the first product or the first concept, which mm-hmm. was the self-stabilizing wheel. And that evolved over time to basically being a dual-wheeled system, keeping the momentum-driven propulsion and cutting away the balancing. Because balancing was drawing energy or power for, for no particular reason. Mm-hmm. So that was something that we got rid of very, very early on. In terms of how it worked as a system, you need to think about the individual components and what you want them to do. So for example, you've got control systems for the electronics and the drive system got the camera system transmission so really it's all about bringing those all together and that is i think one of the big challenges we had as a company was a technically complex edge case of new tech what well, we wouldn't say new technologies but new applied technologies where you needed electronics electrical mechanical robotics um, you know machine learning you needed some transmission security full stack um, you know, there's a whole range of skills that we needed. And that's something that perhaps we we learned the hard way, that we bit off too much. That product required too much engineering resource to actually bring to market. So what we ended up selling to our first you know, paid clients. Obviously, we had pre-sales uh, until we were blue in the face, but that doesn't convert to real revenue. But our first paid client, they actually wanted a more simplified version. They initially started by getting exciting at the robot and the fact that the robot could do all these cool things. But what they really wanted was the robot's brains and the camera system. So that was basically a sensor that was sending information to a transmission box. And that transmission box or brain would then transmit that um, via 4G to our IoT system. So basically a cloud system in AWS that would analyze those images and then generate a result. And that result would then be viewed upon a platform uh, from our client. So the full architecture was quite complex. But towards the end, we really cut down what the hardware actually did because there were too many failure points. Um, it was a fascinating journey and I can, I can dig into more of the technical details, but in general, it, it was a full loop. Uh, it started out with the actual components and the sensor all the way to the user interface on the other side. Okay, that's really that's really cool. And uh, in terms of like languages of the embedded uh, systems within the within the robot, is that like C++ or, because um, from what I understand, a lot of the embedded systems run that. So, I don't know exactly what we wrote in towards the end. I think we initially started with C++. 
moved on to Python towards the end, especially when working with AWS and image recognition. So it was oh, okay. good. We tried to use a lot of open source just to prove the concept. We were still quite early as a company. And by early, I mean, you know, we'd only, uh, total funding was about half a million, but that is very, very early for a robotics company. Mm -hmm. Some companies raise 4 million uh, as their sort of seed round just to get them to, to, to a proof of concept. Uh, and obviously if you're based in the US, you could be raising even more. So f from a, from an early stage company perspective, the fact that we generate a revenue from a paying client, you know, that was something that we were quite proud of, especially that the client saw the value in what we delivered rather than just how cool the technology was when it was fully fitted together. Yeah, and I think especially coming straight out of uni, building a physical product um, to sell is really impressive. Like I'm currently working on a launch of a new product myself and it's all software and I'm several years out of uni and literally it's not physical at all um so there's no real risk to me so and that's been hard enough and compared to um compared to building something from the ground up i think it is really cool i mean and if people want to experiment with robotic stuff would you recommend there's like any particular way to start like raspberry pis or anything like that i think it depends what you mean by robotics that's a very broad area yeah that's true <laughs> but, but you're right if you want to get started and you want to play with something physical or something iot related yes some sort of raspberry pi or some sort of interface that you can program directly to some sort of sensor kit uh, and the sensor kit really depends on what you're trying to achieve so for example one of my passion projects is working with plants basically growing food indoors and my goal is to feed myself perpetually forever by just growing it all at home indoors 24 7 and as part of that i have obviously a goal to analyze all the images that i collect just taking photos on my phone and saying what's in that photo and then make decisions based on that so that doesn't actually require much because I've already got a phone, I can create the software required to interact with my phone. So I don't even need hardware there. But if you wanted to do something outside the realm of the mobile device, then you may need a camera system or you might need a, you know, a water sensor um, or a range of different things you may want to plug in. And then you might need your Raspberry Pi or similar as that sort of control unit. So it completely depends on what you want to do. I think if you just want to play with something, fair enough, that works. But if you want to get stuck in, what I would say is think about what area of robotics you want to work in, because it could be medtech, medtech robotics. It could be picking robots or robotic arms. It could be production and automation functions. It could be autonomous, or essentially using sensory images and decision-making to map or navigate um, a particular area. So there's a whole range of different fields you can go in, and then you can get really stuck into the detail. So you can go down the data science route, or you can go down a sort of mechalec mecha or mechatronics route or you're actually digging into the sensors themselves or, or the drive systems. You know, something that you really want to get uh, focused on, or you can go full electronics and think about what it is that you need to print on a circuit board you know, to get your optimum range, whatever you're looking for. And so there's a lot to think about. I would say fo follow your passion. I think this is a, a general thing I've learned for myself. If you follow your passion, if you do what you want or what you're curious about, no matter what happens, you'll look back on it um, with a positive experience because you've gained, you've learned something along the way. But if you just dive in because you think it'll be cool to do robotics, but you actually don't know what you're getting yourself into, be prepared or be flexible to, to change. Because if you do what you want, you'll end up doing it really well. But if you don't want to do it, you'll either do it really poorly or you won't do it at all. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's one of the biggest pieces of advice that I give people. Um, because, you know, a lot of people listen to the show haven't broken into their first technical role yet they're still a lot of the time still working full-time doing something unrelated maybe they're a student um, and they're tinkering with coding in their spare time 
um, and they're saying, you know, it's arduous, and it, and it is, especially if you're stuck in sort of tutorial hell where you're um, not building anything. And the biggest piece of advice I always tell them is just keep it fun because if you're enjoying something, then you know there's going to be less friction towards working on that project. Like work on something that enjoy uh, that you you would use yourself as a consumer. Like one of the best projects I'd recommend people start with is. You know, if you're learning JavaScript, build a B2C web app of some kind, perhaps something to track your favorite sport um, or a way that you can hook into IMDb to pull in TV shows that uh, if you like one thing, you may like an, uh, another. So you could build an arbitrary recommendation system um, and, and things like that. If you if you keep something fun, you're going to come back to it. And, you know, the video game controller um, or whatever is going to become a lot less appealing uh, than, than it otherwise would be. And it's just all about, I always find it's about removing friction towards the things you want to do and adding friction towards the things you don't want to do. Uh, I I was rereading again <laughs> Atomic Habits for the third time last night, actually. And that's one of the biggest things that the author talks about. And um, it's something I've, I've found a great effect in my life is just reducing friction towards my goals and increasing it towards stuff I want to avoid um, and, and adding pitfalls in general. I think it's massive for, for self-development because as you said, if you're, if you're not having fun or, or you're not enjoying it, then you're going to make it just hard for yourself. And who wants that? Exactly. So what I try to do, so practical advice <laughs> is what I'll try and give now because that, that's easier said than done, right? It's like, oh, just yeah. doing what, what you don't do and start doing what you do is break it down into small bite-sized chunks and build it into your schedule. So for example, I always wanted to wake up early. I really, really struggled. I, I love sleeping, <laughs> don't get me wrong. And I, and I like late nights, uh, surprisingly, but I also love early mornings. So I was constantly pushing myself to either cut my sleep or to wake up really early and be super drowsy uh, and not really be benefiting myself in either way. So I started to say, well, let's do that in 30 minute increments. Let's wake up 30 minutes earlier every day and in that 30 minutes, I'm going to do something I really, really want to do. So at that 30 minute interval, I'll go, what have I really, really want to do, but I couldn't do before because I never had the time. I really wanted to start learning Swift. So I started for those 30 minutes learning Swift. So I, I gave myself a reward for doing that. And now we've got, well, my, my partner and I have got to the stage where we'll wake up at least once a week at about six o'clock in the morning. And then we've got three hours before 9 a.m. obviously or we can do whatever we want. And that could be an hour and a half of learning while you do a bit of cleaning around the house, or it's working on a passion project. And that's purely for me, it's not for anyone else. Uh, and that's something that really helps is giving yourself a treat, even though technically you are working towards a goal, you're treating yourself by doing something you really, really enjoy. Uh, and that really helps. Yeah, and in general as well, if, if it fits with your schedule, waking up early is just such a life hack. Like I, uh, I used to be getting out of bed, particularly when work from home started during the pandemic, I would get out of bed at five to nine um, and just be, you know, and I, I was wasting my time. I was going to bed at like one or 2 a.m., never doing anything productive. Um, I forget the, the term people use for it, but they're like prime hours, the green zone of when uh, you do your most effective work. For me, I always thought it was the evening. Turns out what it wasn't. It's the same um, uh, as, as you're mentioning there. It's the early morning. And now I'm pretty consistent um, at getting up uh, at 6 a.m. I do still have to put my phone outside the room. Uh, that is a, it, in terms of if we're talking, yeah, we're talking practical advice. Sticking the phone outside the room is one of the best things you can do. Um, that and... Um, that and 
having a cat that demands to be fed very very early uh, are the uh, are the two biggest biggest life hacks to getting up early. But yeah, I've, I always suggest people that are learning to code, um, if possible, in your life circumstances, get it out of the way absolutely first thing in the morning because I'm sure you'd agree having spent your mornings learning Swift, um, it's far better to do half an hour to an hour each day than it is to spend every Saturday eight hours cramming it, even if that may be total, more total volume of learning on, on that one day. It's much better to spread it out, I think, because you just learn more effectively. Agreed. For me, it's all about progression. And one of my favorite quotes is, if I can't do it today, I, I won't do it. If I don't start today, at least. So it's not that mm-hmm. I can't plan to do something maybe on a Friday or on a particular day, but ideally I want to get to the point where it's a daily occurrence. If not, it's a regular or weekly occurrence. Because if I don't commit to something regularly, then it's a one-time thing. So one time I, I, you know, I practice Swift. Well, I didn't start it again for another month. Once I started to do it regularly on a weekly basis, and now I actually have a call, a weekly call with a friend of mine where we will program together. Or rather, he's much, much faster than me. So he'll program and I'll watch and we'll build something together. And then I'll go away for the next 30 minutes and I'll take that start to, to play with it myself. And that way I get even more learning from it. And now that I've built those sort of recurring meetings and catch-ups in my calendar, a lot of the things you said, you said I was a busy person. Yes, I may be busy, but really it's because I've structured it all so that every week I'm doing all of those things, you know, half an hour of each. And then by the end of the month, I've already delivered a day's worth of work of each of those without even feeling the effects of that day's work. So it's about breaking those sort of big goals or big time sinks into small bite-sized chunks. You know, you don't yeah. need to buy a pizza in one bite. I mean, I'd be pretty impressed if you did. <laughs> so you, you have to kind of- I'll give it a good go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to pay to see that. <laughs> so basically break it down into bite-sized chunks. It makes it much easier. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I like what you said about how you've been working with a friend who's more experienced with it, because I find it's funny. Often, um, you know, people that are better than you at something, but they're wanting to learn something that you're better than them at. And actually you can end up working together, particularly in the context of programming, because, you know, not everyone's going to be an expert in every single programming language because your mate may be great at Python and then, but you're maybe good at JavaScript and you each want to learn more about the other. So you can just work in, in that way together and just have the knowledge um, shared among, uh, amongst the two of you. And it's just such a good way of doing it. And it's a good way of staying accountable um, as well. I mean, how's the, uh, I meant to ask you actually, because you showed me the app last year, the, uh, the home plant app. How's that been going last year, last month, even, sorry, it's been a long, been a long day. <laughs> it's going quite well. What we're trying to do is build it in stages where we focus on what the value is going to be. So to give you some context, I have mentored and supported startups for over six years now. I've obviously been through a number of accelerator courses in my previous business, you know, raised a number of rounds of investment, had some great advisors, I've been through a number of different courses, as well as going through sort of competitions where they put you through different training and pieces. And what I kind of learned from the whole journey and from helping other startups is you can't focus too much on one area. So you can't just go, I'm going to go and spend a year building or six months building an MVP without speaking to your customers. And you can't only speak to your customers without understanding what it's going to take technically to achieve it. So for example, we're going to be building an algorithm and that algorithm requires data. 
So I need to be feeding that algorithm data and starting to build that data now because it's probably going to take me 12 months to build that data. And at the same time, I also need to think about, well, what is this actually going to take to build it or to deliver this in the way that I envision it to the world? but also breaking that down into small bite-sized chunks. So working on the data model first of how we're going to ingest this data first, what we're going to do, how we're going to define that, and then working with customers or working with users, not talking about a solution, but talking about their problems and saying, what are these big problems? And then building that back into this data model to say, well, these are the big problems that they want. So we really need to focus on this data part first. Otherwise, you know, we're focusing on the cosmetics, such as this is what it looks like. So what I think I showed you was, you know, a very simple graphical interface to say, this is what it could be like to interact. But then that was just sort of a demonstration. Now we're actually going into the data model saying, how is this going to work? And will the output of what we're doing actually benefit? And we're trying to validate at each stage rather than going and focusing on one of those areas for such a long period of time. So I like to kind of break it down into each uh, inflection point or stage of the journey to get the product to where it needs to be. So that it's not just useful to me, which obviously it will be because I'm building it for myself, but it's also going to be useful to others in the community. Yeah, that that makes sense. And um, the connecting the, the the two kind of main topics discussed there of uh, of robotics and um, and and your latest project and your general interest in do they call it vertical farming, where it's like all indoors? I feel like I've heard that term to, to describe it. Some people call it vertical farming. There's yeah a, some different. Uh, sub-components sub of vectors, but essentially mm -hmm. it's all sort of um, indoor or artificial light-based farming. I'm focusing mostly on indoors right now and the farm management problem. So essentially, I would like to achieve a goal of feeding myself. I don't have access mm -hmm. to a lot of land. We're not in a, in, a, in a very sunny country, so I have to do things in a certain way. We do have a shared garden, which we're very lucky with, but even that you know, is only a particular season. So what I wanted is to grow certain things like tomatoes and peppers and strawberries, all the high value crops, not the things that you, know, you can buy pretty cheap at the shops. I wanted to focus on the crops that I knew were gonna be really challenging. And I didn't want to focus on the industrial or commercial scale. I wanted to focus on the home base or you know, the at home user. So yes, I am actually doing vertical farming because I've got them in a, a vertical structure rather than on a floor base. And that's purely for space. But what I am yeah. doing is experimenting with soil as well. So the goal being that um, my mother, for example, who, who lives in Portugal, when I sent her the first hydroponic unit, within about a month, she 10x'd her supply of units because she saw the value of it. And now she's built in soil as well. So you can see that for people trying to just solve a problem, it doesn't matter what the exact solution or mechanism is. It's about how that problem and actually get solved for them. So people actually do find these innovative ways. And that's what I'm trying to dig down into is what are the problems and then how can I come up with an engineering solution to that farm management issue? Yeah, it's really cool because the thing about agricultural technology as well, people don't realize actually how important, first of how important it is, which is silly because of course agriculture is important, but it's just sort of thing where particularly if you live in a city, you don't think about it day to day. And secondly, they don't realize actually um, how big the industry is and how many opportunities there are in it. I think uh, anecdotally, it, it feels like I, I've seen so many more VC funded startups for innovative farming techniques over the past few years than I ever had before. It's, it must be an exciting time to get involved in that kind of industry. It definitely is. We were involved at Zebra Robotics 
towards the end of our journey for the last, let's say, 12 months, we were fully focused on ag tech, especially as COVID hit, we really had to just shift our focus mm. or potentially die. And we managed to survive. You know, my, my co-founder did a fantastic job of being able to pivot or take the, tech, the technology that we developed and essentially integrate that into this customer's demand. And we had one customer essentially at the time who expressed interest and they were at a really early stage and we basically took that and applied it to them. But what we learned from that was how disconnected the farming sector really is. They don't really know what is happening in real time or even on a regular basis on their farms because of just of the size and the complexity. So what I'm really excited in is the introduction of more data. So you see it with satellites or various other sensor technologies where they're able to say, by looking at your farm over X amount of time or your space, we can detect things that are occurring. You know, do it using multi-spectrum, for example, you'll be able to say, oh, I can see that there's, there's going to be, you know, this issue with your plant because there is uh, less water or there's stress in this area by using this particular spectrum. So that's what I'm excited about is the power of data to actually inform decisions and to make farming obviously more efficient um, and require less fertilizer, less pesticides and so on and so forth. So I'm focused at least personally more on that angle. How can we use software data and essentially technology to make farming more efficient? Uh, it's interesting because it's always a bit of a, it's a bit of a meme popularized by the TV show Silicon Valley about how software companies have to say, oh, we're making the world a better place. But I think with, uh, with ag tech, it is one of those things where legitimately they are making the world better, a better place because, you know, if we have less waste, more abundance of, um, of food, then, you know, I, I, I doubt you can find anyone who thinks that that's a bad thing, right? Exactly. I, I like Apart from if you own a fertilizer <laughs> company, I suppose. <laughs> Perhaps. I like the idea of being able to build something as a passion project and, you know, build something physical, such as, you know, my own home or internal vertical farm in my kitchen that I could eat. So the value there is imminent for me because I know that in a, every week I get a salad or three salads from the vertical farm. And then I'm starting to add new vegetables to it. So tomatoes and peppers and whatever it may be. I like the fact that I can eat my project. There, there's not been many projects I've worked on in my life where I've actually got to enjoy the fruits of my labor. Yeah, that's a good point. I never considered that actually. Um, and with, with the with the app and the monitoring uh, of what you're working on, um, how's that process been built, building an app? So I, I've never, for context, I've never built a native application myself. I've only ever really done web-based stuff, even when it comes to mobile, uh, like using React Native and that kind of thing. Um, how's it been building stuff with Swift? If people want to get started and perhaps inspired to build their own kind of um, uh, vertical farming and ag tech uh, apps using it, how would you recommend people get started? Are there any good resources? I mean, there's tons. Perfectly honest, the first thing I did when I, when I decided was what language and why. So I have an iPhone, so obviously Swift. So I knew mm. that was what I wanted. So find something that you can immediately inter interact with. So if you've got an Android device, you probably want to go down the Kotlin route. I'm saying Kotlin because you want to aim for the more modern platforms or more modern languages because they will be the future, the frameworks that will become the future frameworks and so on and so forth. That's a good thing to start on. So I started on Swift UI, which I found fascinating. It's really easy when you think about it because the way that the ecosystem is built, there's a lot of support. And this has been around for so long because obviously Apple wants you to build apps. <laughs> okay. It's part of their business model. So if you literally just type into Google or onto YouTube, 
you know, tutorial on Swift, within about three or four hours, you've built your first app and you've got a simulator. So you can see what it looks like. So you're using Xcode and you go, bam, here's my simulator. This is what it looks like. And you can interact with it. And that gave me that sort of um, that joy because I saw what I built. I was able to play with it and then re-simulate and then play with it again uh, and then see what wouldn't work, what, what did work. One thing I would say is don't focus too much on the UI in the beginning because that's just a time sink. You could spend hours and hours and hours looking at spacing and, and font sizes and images. That's not worth your time at the beginning. You really want to focus on how do I build new functions and structures and things that I did not even knew existed when I've been programming with my friend. I've been able to then apply that because these are things or shortcuts or ways to overcome it. So as soon as you've got that base knowledge, the couple of tutorials, try and work with someone else or watch someone else code, or at least you know, download an open source project and then try and understand it. So dig into the detail as soon as possible, because that's what I found has made that step down for me is building it myself and going, this is a long wind way of doing it. And then seeing someone else build it and go, oh wow, so I can just use that enumeration. <laughs> and, that, and that helps me prevent all these knock-on functions. So it's, uh, it's all about just getting stuck in uh, and making sure that you really enjoy what you're programming. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think around the looking at open source projects is, is huge. Like um, same thing in JavaScript, really. Like you can look at how more experienced coders um, have written their apps. And like you said, you know, just, just see how they approach problems. Like obviously not lifting the code, um, but it, it's just generally so good to see best practices uh, a lot of the time as well. Um which is, this is particularly a problem in the React world, uh, is that people will just dump in dependencies without even thinking about it. And actually, if you go and dive into the dependencies and have a look about how they work, you're much more likely um, to be able to realize what's going on in the future when they inevitably go wrong um, because you have 100 dependencies and uh, they, <laughs> they all require different uh, dependencies and, it's, um, and it all breaks and it's a nightmare. So it's a really good idea to do that. And I think I had this weird thing where, cause I learned, cause I was self-taught. I, I always just thought dependencies were almost magic. Um, and open, but I, it sounds really silly, <laughs> but they're just big open source projects. <laughs> I've actually learned this the hard way where I, I would build dependencies or I build links to other pieces or libraries. And I learned that if I hadn't built it myself and I hadn't read that library or actually gone through it, I'm basically giving myself future work. I'm saying future self, yeah. you're going you're to have to deal with this. And what we did when my friends started helping with this project was think about it from the perspective of what do we need to build? That's a foundation that we need to focus on now. And then let's build these nice things later. So flag libraries or icons, whatever, if you can use something native, like SF symbols, fantastic. You know, you're basically able to then use something that's already available to you rather than plugging into a library that has all these cool icons. That's definitely going to break. And you know, hopefully it doesn't, but it's probably going to break. And then there's other things such as, well, do I actually need to connect to my cloud system yet? Or can I just use Firebase to start off with? So can I use a database or can I use something that's already built and works well with that ecosystem? Because you want to reduce the points of failure, whether this is you know build, building a physical robotic system or, or uh, an autonomous robot, or whether it's you know, building your own mobile application, you want to build something that you know will work and then add complexity. And when you add the complexity, add layers or buffers. So if you wanted to, you could turn it off. So if you, if you know that this is not going to work and it's a dependency you don't control, you want to build some protection in there so that you could turn it off if you require. 
So you want to start with a base foundation that's not too complex, because once you add layers to it, you know, it becomes kind of like an onion. So you want to be careful that you've got something in the middle that you just can't remove without stripping away five or six layers and losing probably years worth of work, depending on if you're doing this by yourself. So just sort of be careful and think about that architecture, like how are you actually going to build it? And even if you think about it from a non-software perspective, you know, what layer is the first layer? What's the foundation of the house? And then obviously the walls or the structural supports, and then maybe the roof and so on and so forth. So you don't want to put the sofa in <laughs> until the roof's up. You know, that, that that's a big thing. You see people kind of like, you know, half-assing, I would say, some of your programming. And I used to do the same thing, so I don't blame them. But it's purely because they're not perhaps ready and they don't have that foundation. They're not sure what they're going to build. So they build just parts of it. And eventually they have to go back and refactor or just completely scrap what they've built. And so unless you're doing that for learning purposes, I'd probably start from the most important thing first and the structure and then build complexity on top. Yeah, I think sometimes people misrepresent quotes like how um, the, I forget his name now, uh, the founder of LinkedIn said, if you're not embarrassed by your MVP, then you've launched too late. And there is a lot of truth to that, but the features that you do launch with should be complete. That's that's what he was getting at. Like, yeah, you may be embarrassed because your UI is a bit rubbish or something, but you need to actually complete the features that you've committed to. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of very angry users or even worse, security vulnerabilities or the like. Exactly. I think that MVP concept is, is actually quite quite interesting. The first blog we launched on Scale Up Lessons with uh, one of my invest, actually early investors in Ziva was how to build a tech startup or scalable tech startup on a budget. And one of the first points we made was that MVP means different things to different people. So you say minimum viable product. What does that mean? What does viable mean? Does it mean commercially viable? Does it mean technically viable? And then for every person you speak to, they have something different. So we, we joked about it and we came up with the concept of minimum valuable product. So you can't go and launch this technically viable thing with a range of different features if none of those features are valuable. And that's the challenge, making sure that you could launch something that's a bit dirty or a bit messy from a UI perspective, but it delivers value. So, it's, so technically it's viable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the, that's the key of what, what's being got at here and um, you know, you still need to have be um, feature complete. And uh, I, I agree with you about how you were saying the removing the points of failures is, is huge. It's really interesting you brought up Firebase because um, for my new project, startupgradjobs.com, um, I chose to leverage Superbase, which is essentially the open source um, version of Firebase. And it's been a very liberating experience because I have massively reduced my points of failure. And coincidentally, working with databases and backend work in general is my weaker aspect. So I've been able to just deal with it all. It, it, it's fantastic. And, you know, if it gets to the point where the company's making loads and loads of money, I can probably just hire a backend specialist to, <laughs> to build me a custom solution uh, is the whole idea. But Firebase is good as, um, as, good as well. But ge generally, it, it's such a good idea to think about, okay, be pragmatic about it. What do I need to actually do myself to make the difference here? Um, and a lot of the time, if you can get your database managed, it's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't build a huge on-prem solution uh, with server racks in, you know, like the spare room that I'm in now um, when I can just use AWS. <laughs> exactly. You need to think about where your time is most valuable. And I've realized, for example, that what we're building with, with the Perpetual app is just the foundation. You know, it's just a prototyping foundation to get users onboarded. 
and I may be supporting with a lot of that, but my friend will be building that app, if that makes sense. So I will be supporting and I will be reviewing some of the code. I'll be adding um, small features in and, you know, pushing certain pieces that I may really want or you know, informing it from a user perspective. But at the end of the day, I'm partnering with somebody who has built apps at scale, deployed them, uh, and knows where the, the short shortfalls will be. And that that is huge. So I know that I'm not going to be the, the best iOS developer out there because that's not the way my career is going. And that's not what I want to achieve, but I want to, to learn Swift. So I've been able to hopefully build a team of interested people around me or the project in, in particular and that i can focus on the most important thing which is working with users experimenting building it all together kind of building the team and sort of project managing it from from the backbone making sure the foundations are there and getting involved in those foundations so that if it does become something that launches on the app store and does really really well of course then the foundations are in place but we can then bring on a more professional team who can then take on each of those areas. So you don't have to do everything yourself. That, that's one thing I learned the, the hard way. You know, starting as a, as a solo founder, I realized that I didn't have all the skills. Uh, and Ziva brought on my co-founder at the time, uh, who was also a close friend, who had the mechanical electrical skill set, whereas I only had the mechanical. So my programming knowledge was so limited that I was unable to actually turn this self-stabilizing wheel into a business mm. because I could not close that gap. Uh, we knew that we had a software gap as well, which perhaps we were too late in our journey to fill when the time came. Um, but that was something that we, we probably should have thought of from day one. You know, we maybe had the commercial, the sales, we had the hardware engineering, but we lacked the software. Uh, and that was a lesson uh, that we're now going to resolve for any future products. Yeah. And talking of entrepreneurship and coding, um, obviously we're both very involved, but you particularly are extremely involved in the um, Edinburgh technology ecosystem. And I highly recommend people get down um, to the Edinburgh Tech Meetup that you organise is a really, really good night um, that is on uh, every month at Codebase, isn't it? So I uh, highly rec recommend people get there. Um, what do you think is the future of Edinburgh and the wider Central Belts uh, tech scene? Do you think we've got reason to be excited? 100%. I've noticed, even during the last six years, the access to funding and support and learning programmes like TechScaler, for example, which is run by Codebase. It's obviously government-backed, government-funded. That is a great program. To see that come out and to be backed by the Scottish government is huge because essentially what you have is you have access to all this knowledge that otherwise was decentralized. So that's really good. You see companies coming up through the, the spaces. And what I mean by that is you maybe have a company like X-Design, uh, which was once 40 people and it's now over 400 or 500 now. Uh, and that's that's a good journey because not only are they able to hire more engineering talent from Edinburgh or, or locally in Scotland, but they're also able to give back to the community. And then you've got even you know bigger companies that have just gone through uh, various different um, exits or acquisition processes. So that is good because you may be able to recycle some of that capital into the scene. So every time you see success in one part of the tech scene, you know that that's going to be recycled back. So for example, um, you know, there's, there was, I won't, won't name names, but let's say there were some big exits recently and within the sort of tech startup scene or Scottish startups. And those founders will then be able to either reinvest and be able to share their knowledge with the scene. So because we've got that cycle, it's the same thing that would have happened in Silicon Valley really, really early on, where you've got one or two sort of big names 
that have exited, have got a bit of cash and are able to fund and take that high risk, especially at an early stage with certain companies. That excites me to see more Scottish entrepreneurs who exit, you know, hopefully make a, a large amount of money and then can reinvest. But it's not just about them. It's about the whole ecosystem coming together. So you've got Scottish Edge, you've got Converse Challenge, which are really early scale. And there are great funding opportunities, whether it's through Scottish Enterprise or through the Royal Society of Edinburgh or various university courses and other subsidiary. That excites me. The fact that things are happening, it's we're not slowing down, we're speeding up. And the companies are actually getting smarter because the access to knowledge and something like Scale Up Lessons, where you're basically getting all these amazing people who've, who've done, been there, done that, got their specialism, uh, are able to share that back. That's something that excites me. Yeah, I agree. I think we have a lot of good reason to be excited. The ecosystem post-COVID seems to really be um, rebounding uh, in terms of like meetups. There seems to be anecdotally a lot more stuff like that going on um, going on now. In terms of businesses, like I've seen Codebase seems to be getting busier and busier. And, um, you know, I always feel like we have the ingredients for things to really pop off here. Um, as you said, like there's a couple of very large companies that exited and did very well. Um, and we have so many great universities in both Edinburgh and Glasgow um, that are very well known for, for, for STEM. So we've got good reason to be excited. And, you know, I, I think uh, the message is if you're if you're a techie and you're considering moving somewhere new and uh, you don't like the sun too much, then <laughs> come to come to Scotland Central Belt. It's the place to be. <laughs> exactly. And the flights to Europe or to the sunny part of Europe are pretty cheap. So <laughs> in comparison. So when you think about it, Edinburgh is becoming that hub. And this is something that's excited me. You know, my partner and I are, are probably always going to have a, a space in Edinburgh because no matter where we go, you know, Edinburgh's got access to technical resources like no other place. And at a price or at a reasonable standard of living, you know, not at sort of London prices with all the challenges of London, it's got all the benefits of being a smaller, more close-knit community with access to you know, the amazing Scottish environment and the funding and the support. So it's really good for early stage startups. It's perhaps a bit challenging when you're trying to scale because um, as a community, we're so focused on us and ourselves and kind of getting it right at the early stages that when we do actually peak ourselves up and look at the international scale, perhaps maybe it's not the ambition, but the access to the international market is perhaps not there just yet. And we maybe should be building products that are internationally focused from the start with a local community-led design. So we, you know, think big essentially, and don't be scared of the fact that the world is a much larger place, but also don't forget about getting those fundamentals right. And that's the balancing act that I think startups are going to have to make as you start to move through that growth, growth phase, making sure they are thinking about the future because Scotland is a great place, but we're only one country in the world and we need to actually shout a bit louder. You know, it shouldn't just be about whiskey and bagpipes. It should be about <laughs> all the amazing tech that we produce all the innovations that have come out of scotland that's what we should be shouting about 100 percent. and what a good note to uh to lead the podcast on there's a lot of reason to be excited about scotland thanks so much for coming on selby it's been really cool to chat if people want to find out more from you get involved in what you're doing uh across uh scotland what's the best way to get in touch generally on linkedin i will, I will try my best to respond to any messages i get and provide any advice or support that i can um, best thing to do if you're looking for ways to learn about startups and scale-ups. I share a variety of different topics on the Scale Up Lessons blog series. 
Uh, it's all sort of volunteer-led, myself and a range of different collaborators across the world, those who've exited startups for billions of dollars, all the way to individuals who work in specific sectors like recruitment and digital marketing, and they share their knowledge for free uh, on the Scale Blessings series. So if you want to just dig into something there, there are a couple of chunky blogs. If you do want to come along to some of the meetups, highly recommend the Edinburgh Tech Meetup. It's free pizza, it's free drinks, and there are a couple of talks. It's an opportunity for you to pitch your startup or pitch your idea to the whole audience. It's about 100 people, very close-knit, lovely, everyone's super welcoming. Or if you want something really focused, there's also the Entrepreneur Social Club, which is the last Wednesday of every month at Fazendo in Edinburgh. And we just get together as founders uh, and we basically discuss the challenges we've had over the course of the last month. And it's a great place to meet people in a more uh, close-knit environment. So it's up to you. The advice that I always give to people is that if you really, really want to do something that you should start today, you should start thinking about what it's going to take today to make that small step towards your goal. And then tomorrow you make another small step. And by the end of the month, you've made 30 steps towards your goal. Uh, and once you've done that, momentum will carry you through. So if you're going to do anything, start now. 100%. And for some months, it's 31, so even better. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, forget about February. Um, but uh, yeah, for, uh, you know, 31 will, uh, could be even better. But yeah, uh, really awesome speaking with you, Selby. I'm looking forward um, to the next event you put on. And, uh, you know, people want to actually, if people want to meet both of us, then uh, you can catch both of us there. Um, uh, but yeah, thanks, listeners, for tuning into another episode of The Code of Career. We are in your podcast feed each and every other Monday, um, in fact. And don't forget to rate and leave reviews. Thanks, everyone.